Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 454. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Y'all ready to get down with Bokrug? Who's Bokrug? Disrespectful. Who's Bokrug? Did he say who's Bokrug? Man, come on. Don't be going around assuming people's genders. You don't know who don't know Bokrug. Oh, snap. But, yeah, that's what I heard the listeners say, too. Unfamiliar with the great abominable marine water lizard slash deity of lost in ancient times, praise be his name, and shockingly willing to just open up about that lack of familiarity at the risk of making themselves vulnerable to the judgment and attacks of others who do know Bokrug. Shit ain't right. Well, and because they value truth more than they fear inquiry. And because they trust and respect us enough to not make this about their not knowing, but instead to meet them halfway with the same respect and same sincerity that they had the courage to show us in admitting that they don't know everything when, of course, none of us do. And joining with them now in the shared pursuit of knowledge about, about Bokrug, the greatest of mother f***ing water lizards. What an opportunity this affords us all. What a day. What, what a moment to celebrate together with renewed interest and enthusiasm ourselves, the fact that perhaps nothing in this world of beautiful mysteries and marvelous unknowns is more wonderful a gift to acknowledge or more powerful a force to behold or more admirable a pursuit to engage in or more more taken for granted a thing than our capacity to wonder, our ability to learn and our commitment to asking questions. So, thank you, listener. Thank you. I don't know what to... Let's bring it in, everybody, huh? Let's bring it in. It's a Bokrug moment, huh, everybody? Yeah, Bokrug on three. Bokrug! I should have counted. (laughs) Who's this guy? Dumbass. That's what it's all about. So yeah, you guessed it. It's HP Lovecraft month here on the Drabblecast. And now that you've met Bokrug, let's get started. What is H.P. Lovecraft Month on the Drabblecast? If you don't know, you must be newish to the show, which is cool. Hey. Lovecraft Month is something we do here once a year, where we commission three original stories for Drabblecast. Any genre, any subject matter, no rules, no limits, no pants, no pressure, no excuses, no milking weird animals that aren't in the current lexicon of ones whose dense, swollen breasts we're comfortable draining fully of glandular fluid and gulping down as modern human adults with countless other beverage alternatives to us. Mm, I can't believe this goat's stupid babies used to have all this yummy titty milk to himself. No fair. Mm. No fear. No fucks given. No afterlife. Just darkness. No biting hands that feed you. No biting anyone's hand. No, come here, come here. No eating from hands that belong to other people, period. Okay? Looking out for you. No reprints, no regrets, no child left behind unless it's Liam Neeson's and then (laughs) crazy. You better drop that youngin' back at the mall. No bullshit, no lies, no coming around here no more, no, yeah, some side boob, no perishables or liquid, toxic or fragile whatevers, and, and no diggity, all right? I want to be very upfront about that. And finally, no non-mythos-inspired stories in the show this month. Yeah, because it's Lovecraft month. Eh. And if you don't like Lovecraft or you don't know what this is, that's fine. The other stories this month are going to sound just like Drabblecast stories. They're great. This week, though, yeah. Bullcrow! <laughs> 
Lovecraft's signature taste of indescribable cosmic horror, indescribable terror of the unknown, indescribable fear of short sentences, and indescribable aversion to queer milks acquired by esoteric means from beasts whose shunned memories had hitherto remained for centuries both untried and untended by that of curious mankind but will no doubt be unearthed soon through the eager persistence and credible scholarship of men who are learned naturalists. Men who, among other things of course, seek to gain insights into the strange nature of their nipples and teats and other milk-producing ducts of great interest, so that... Sorry. So that we can ascertain, for all of mankind, the degree to which it is either appropriate or completely abhorrent to wring out a creature's fluid mammary reservoirs and consume it for ourselves. Or not do that. The marvels of the unknown are many, but with each furtive milk-minded wrenching, we get closer and closer to knowing all the milks of all the animals in all the known world. Perhaps one day beyond. So what do we got? Who do we got? Next week we bring you a cool story, man. Old school Drabblecast horror vibe for sure. Called In My Brain, In My Body by Evie Barber. The week after that we bring you a space opera by the magnanimous Nick Mamatas that features my personal fave Lovecraft mythos creations, spoiler, the Migo. And finally after that, a story by none other than Drabblecast original darling, the first People's Choice Award winner for best story, Jelly Park the lovely Aaliyah Whiteley. Gonna be good. All right, so our story this week, you're getting some classic HP dark fantasy. Not really a common genre for him, but this one's pretty cool. It's called The Doom That Came to Sarnath. Born in Providence, Rhode Island, Lovecraft spent most of his life in New England. After his father was institutionalized in 1893, he lived affluently, but his family's wealth dissipated soon after the death of his grandfather. After this point, he was living with his mother in reduced financial conditions until she was institutionalized in 1919. Woof. Alright, so without further ado, we bring you The Doom That Came to Sarnath by H.P. Lovecraft. The Doom That Came to Sarnath by H.P. Lovecraft There is in the land of Mnar a vast still lake that is fed by no stream and out of which no stream flows. Ten thousand years ago there stood by its shore the mighty city of Sarnath, but Sarnath stands there no more. It is told that in the immemorial years when the world was young, before ever the men of Sarnath came to the land of Mnar, another city stood beside the lake, the grey stone city of Ib, which was old as the lake itself and peopled with beings not pleasing to behold. Very odd and ugly were these beings, as indeed are most beings of a world yet inchoate and rudely fashioned. It is written on the brick cylinders of Cadatheron that the beings of Ib were in hue as green as the lake and the mists that rise above it, that they had bulging eyes, pouting flabby lips and curious ears, and were without voice. It is also written that they descended one night from the moon in a mist, they and the vast still lake and the grey stone city of Ib, 
However this may be, it is certain that they worshipped a sea-green stone idol chiseled in the likeness of Bokrug, the great water lizard, before which they danced horribly when the moon was gibbous. And it is written in the papyrus of Yarnak that they one day discovered fire, and thereafter kindled flames on many ceremonial occasions. But not much is written of these beings, because they lived in very ancient times, and man is young and knows little of the very ancient living things. After many eons, men came to the land of Minar, dark shepherd folk with the fleecy flocks who built Thra, Yarnak, and Kadatharon on the winding river Yai, and certain tribes, more hardy than the rest, pushed on the border of the lake and built Sarnath at a spot where precious metals were found in the earth. Not far from the great city of Ib did the wandering tribes lay the first stones of Sarnath, and at the beings of Ib they marveled greatly. But with their marveling was mixed hate, for they thought it not meet that beings of such aspect should walk about the world of men at dusk. Nor did they like the strange sculptures upon the grey monoliths of Ib, for those sculptures were terrible with great antiquity. Why the beings and the sculptures lingered so late in the world, even until the coming of men, none can tell, unless it was because the land of Mnar is very still and remote from most other lands, both of waking and of dream. As the men of Sarnath beheld more of the beings of Ib, their hate grew, and it was not less because they found the beings weak and soft as jelly to the touch of stones and spears and arrows. So one day the young warriors, the slingers and the spearmen and the bowmen, marched against Ib and slew all inhabitants thereof, pushing the queer bodies into the lakes with long spears, because they did not wish to touch them. And because they did not like the grey sculptured monoliths of Ib, they cast these also into the lake, wondering from the greatness of the labor how ever the stones were brought from afar, as they must have been, since there is naught like them in all the land of Minar, or in the lands adjacent. Thus, of the very ancient city of Ib, was nothing spared save the sea-green stone idol chiseled in the likeness of Bokrug, the water lizard. This the young warriors took back with them to Sarnath as a symbol of conquest over the old gods and beings of Ib, and a sign of leadership in Mnar. But on the night after it was set up in the temple, a terrible thing must have happened, for weird lights were seen over the lake, and in the morning the people found the idol gone, and the high priest Taran Ish lying dead, as from some fear unspeakable. And before he died, Taran Ish had scrawled upon the altar of chrysolite with coarse, shaky strokes the sign of doom. After Taran Ish, there were many high priests in Sarnath, but never was the sea-green stone idol found. And many centuries came and went, wherein Sarnath prospered exceedingly, so that only priests and old women remembered what Taran Ish had scrawled upon the altar. Betwixt Sarnath and the city of Yarnak arose a caravan route, and the precious metals from the earth were exchanged for other metals, and rare cloths, and jewels, and books, and tools, and all things of luxury that are known to the people who dwell along the winding river Yai. So Sarnath waxed mighty and learned and beautiful, and sent forth conquering armies to subdue the neighboring cities. 
And in time there sate upon a throne in Sarnath the kings of all the land of Mnar and the lands adjacent. The wonder of the world and the pride of all mankind was Sarnath the Magnificent. Of polished desert quarried marble were its walls, in height three hundred cubits and in breadth seventy-five, so that chariots might pass each other as men drave them upon the top. For full five hundred stadia did they run, being open only on the side toward the lake, where a green stone seawall kept back the waves that rose oddly once a year at the festival of the destroying of Ib. In Sarnath were fifty streets from the lake to the gates of the caravans, and fifty more intersecting them. With onyx were they paved, save those whereupon the horses and camels and elephants trod, which were paved with granite, and the gates of Sarnath were as many as the landward ends of the street, each of bronze, and flanked with the figures of lions and elephants, carven from some stone no longer known among men. The houses of Sarnath were of glazed brick and chalcedony, each having its walled garden and crystal lakelet. With strange arts were they builded, for no other city had houses like them, and travelers from Thra and Yarnik and Kedatheron marveled the shining domes wherewith they surmounted. But more marvelous still were the palaces and the temples, and the gardens made by Zokar, the old king. There were many palaces, the least of which were mightier than in any Thra or Yarnik or Kadatheron. So high were they that one within might sometimes fancy himself beneath only the sky. Yet when lighted with torches dipped in the oil of Dothar, their walls showed vast paintings of kings and armies, of a splendor at once inspiring and stupefying to the beholder. Many were the pillars of the palaces, all of tinted marvel, and carven into designs of surpassing beauty, and in most of the palaces the floors were mosaics of beryl and lapis lazuli and sardonyx and carbuncle, so disposed that the beholder might fancy himself walking over beds of rarest flowers. And there were likewise fountains, which cast scented waters about in pleasing jets arranged with cunning art. Outshining all others was the palace of the kings of Nar. On a pair of golden crouching lions rested the throne, many steps above the gleaming floor, and it was wrought of one piece of ivory, though no man lives who knows whence so vast a piece could have come. In that palace there were many galleries, many amphitheaters, where lions and men and elephants battled the pleasure of kings. Sometimes the amphitheaters were flooded with water, conveying from the lake in mighty aqueducts, and then there were enacted stirring sea fights or combats betwixt swimmers and deadly marine things. Lofty and amazing were the seventeen tower-like temples of Sarnath, fashioned of a bright, multicolored stone not known elsewhere. A full thousand cubit high stood the greatest among them, wherein the high priests dwelt with a magnificence scarce less than that of kings. On the ground were halls as vast and splendid as those of the palaces, where gathered throngs in worship of Zokalar and Tamash and Loban, the chief gods of Sarnath, whose incense-enveloped shrines were as the thrones of monarchs. Not like the icons of other gods were those of Zokalar and Tamash and Loban. For so close to life were they that one might swear the graceful bearded gods themselves sat on the ivory thrones. 
And up unending steps of shining zircon was the tower chamber, wherefrom the high priests looked out over the city and the plains and the lake by day, and the cryptic moon and significant stars and planets, their reflections in the lake by night. Here was done the very secret and ancient rite in detestation of Bokrug, the water lizard, and here rested the altar of chrysolite which bore the doom scrawl of Taranish. Wonderful likewise were the gardens made by Zokar, the olden king. In the center of Sarnath they lay, covering a great space and encircled by a high wall and they were surmounted by a mighty dome of glass through which shone the sun and moon and stars and planets when it was clear and from which were hung fulgent images of the sun and moon and stars when it was not clear in summer the gardens were cooled with fresh odorous breezes skillfully wafted by the fans and in winter they were heated with concealed fires so that in those gardens it was always spring there ran little streams over bright pebbles, dividing meads of green and gardens of many hues, and spanned by a multitude of bridges. Many were the waterfalls in their courses, and many were the lilied lakelets in which they expanded. Over the streams and lakelets rode white swans, whilst the music of rare birds chimed in the melody of the waters. In ordered terraces rose the green banks, adorned here and there with bowers of vines and sweet blossoms, and seats and benches of marble and porphyry, and there were many small shrines and temples where one might rest or pray to small gods. Each year there were celebrated in Sarnath the Feast of the Destroying of Ib, at which time wine, song, dancing, and merriment of every kind abounded. Great honors were then paid to the shades of those who had annihilated the odd ancient beings and the memory of those beings and of their elder gods derided by dancers and lutenists crowned with roses from the garden of Zokar. And the king would look out over the lake and curse the bones of the dead that lay beneath it. At first, the high priests liked not these festivals, for there descended amongst them queer tales of how the sea-green icon had vanished, and how Taran Ish had died from fear and left a warning. And they said that from their high tower they sometimes saw lights beneath the waters of the lake. But as many years passed without calamity, even the priests laughed and cursed and joined in the orgies of the feasters. Indeed, had they not themselves in their high tower often performed the very ancient and secret rite in detestation of Bokrug, the water lizard? And a thousand years of riches and delight passed over Sarnath, wonder of the world, pride of all mankind. Gorgeous beyond thought was the feast of the thousand years of destroying of Ib. For a decade had it been talked of in the land of Nar, and as it drew nigh there came to Sarnath, on horses and camels and elephants, men from Thra, Yarnek, and Kedatharon, and all the cities of Nar and the land beyond. Before the marble walls on the appointed night were pitched the pavilions of princes and the tents of travelers, and on the shore resounded the song of happy revelers. Within his banquet hall reclined Narjisay, the king, drunken with ancient wine from the vaults of conquered Panath, and surrounded by feasting nobles and hurrying slaves. 
There were eaten many strange delicacies at that feast. Peacocks from the isles of Nariel, young goats from the distant hills of Implam, heels of camels from the Banak desert, nuts and spices from Sidathian groves, and pearls from the wave-washed metal dissolved in the vinegar of Thraw. Of sauces there were untold number, prepared by the subtlest cooks in all of Mnar, and suited to the palates of every feaster. But most prized of all the viands were the great fishes from the lake, each of vast size and served up on golden platters set with rubies and diamonds. Whilst the king and his nobles feasted within the palace and viewed the crowning dish as it awaited them on golden platters, others feasted elsewhere. In the tower of the great temple, the priests held revels, and in pavilions without walls, the princes of neighboring lands made merry. And it was the high priest Gnakai who first saw the shadows that descended from the gibbous moon into the lake, and the damnable green mists that arose from the lake to meet the moon, and to shroud all a sinister haze the towers, the domes of fated Sarnath. Thereafter those in the towers and without the walls beheld strange lights on the water, and saw that the grey rock Acurion, which was wont to rear high above it near the shore, was almost submerged, and fear grew vaguely yet swiftly, so that princes of Yarnek and afar Rakul took down and folded their tents and pavilions, and departed for the river Yah, though they scarce knew the reason of their departing. Then, close to the hour of midnight, all the bronze gates of Sarnath burst open and emptied forth a frenzied throng that blackened the plain, so that all the visiting princes and travelers fled away in fright. For on the faces of this throng was writ a madness born of horror unendurable, and on their tongues were words so terrible that no hearer paused for proof. Men whose eyes were wild with fear shrieked aloud at the sight within the king's banquet hall, where through the windows were seen no longer the forms of Nargis Hay and his nobles and slaves, but a horde of indescribable green, voiceless things with bulging eyes, pouting flabby lips and curious ears, things which danced horribly, bearing in their paws golden platters set with rubies and diamonds, containing uncouth flames, and the princes and travelers, as they fled from the doomed city of Sarnath on horses and camels and elephants, looked again upon the mist-begetten lake and saw the gray rock Acurion was quite submerged. Through all the land of Mnar and all the lands adjacent spread the tales of those who had fled from Sarnath, and caravans sought that accursed city and its precious metals no more. It was long ere any traveler went thither, and even then only the brave and adventurous young men of distant Falona dared make the journey. Adventurous young men of yellow hair and blue eyes, who are no kin of the men of Mnar. These men indeed went to the lake to view Sarnath, but though they found the vast still lake itself, and the grey rock Acurion which rears high above it near the shore, they beheld not the wonder of the world and pride of all mankind, where once had risen walls of three hundred cubits and towers yet higher, now stretched only the marshy shore, 
and where once had dwelt fifty millions of men, now crawled only the detestable green water lizard. Not even the mines of precious metal remained, for doom had come to Sarnath. But half buried in the rushes was spied a curious green idol stone, an exceedingly ancient idol coated with seaweed and chiseled in the likeness of Bokrug, the great water lizard. That idol, enshrined in the high temple of Yarnek, was subsequently worshipped beneath the gibbous moon throughout all the lands of Nar. was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Got a great month of stories coming up for you folks. You're going to have a good time. And hey, if you liked our show this week and want to support what we do, consider making a small donation. Help us keep on keeping on. Man, do we appreciate it. And it's super easy. Go to our website at drabblecast.org. At the top there, you'll find a support button. Click that puppy and you can make a donation in any amount, one time, or you can sign up for a monthly subscription. Would be swell yeah. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist, Shane Bevan. Shane's an artist who enjoys playing on the fringes of digital and physical art. He lectures in digital media at Flinders University in Australia, and in his spare time, he makes art that is cool, weird, or weirdly cool. Thanks, Shane. Our program this week was brought to you by Bo Kyer, Sandro Dell, Tom Baker, Jason Smith, Jen Fisher, a giant crab with a chainsaw for one of its claws, Cameron Howard, Maria Dong, Jason Cavella, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to not mess with Ib. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round.